If you're enjoying History's Greatest Cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast mini-series, History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan, and in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sights of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together, we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness. And we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by writer Jules Stewart to explore the Spanish capital, Madrid. Jules lived for 20 years in Madrid, where he worked as a journalist. He's the author of a dozen books, including Madrid, A History, published by IB Taurus, and co-author with Helen Crisp of Madrid, Midnight City, published by Reaction Books. Jules is the ideal guide to lead us through the sights and history of this remarkable city. Together, we'll roam relics of its foundation by the Arab Emir of Cordoba, the so-called Reconquista in the 11th century, the city's rise to prominence as the capital of a unified Spain, and the turbulent years of the 19th and 20th centuries. Along the way, we'll admire some of the magnificent landmarks of this vibrant city, as well as less well-known spots to enjoy and absorb its culture, heritage, and perhaps even a spot of food and drink. Jules, welcome. Thank you very much for that flattering introduction. Um, so, Jules, today Madrid is famed for its art and architecture, its nightlife, and of course football. But where is Madrid located, and who were the first people to live here, and why did they settle? Well, the earliest recorded history that I've discovered about Madrid goes back to the ninth century, when it was a Moorish fortress known as Mahadid. In Arabic, in old Arabic, it was place of water. And this is quite significant, which we'll see later. Before that, the Romans who invaded the Iberian Peninsula, that was in the second century BC, paid little attention to this, what was in fact a little village, or not even a village, just a backwater, small fortress. They were after much bigger prizes like uh, Barcelona and Cadiz. The Visigoths who came afterwards integrated Madrid into their kingdom of Toledo. That was in the 6th century AD. Albeit, it remained, and for many, for many, many years, an insignificant outpost. Now, it started to gain prominence when Alfonso VI of Castile conquered Majerid from the Moors. That was in the late, if I remember correctly, 1085, late 11th century. It was an amusing incident how it came about because one soldier was called El Gato, cat in Spanish. And that was because when they reached the walls, he jumped off his horse, he scampered up the wall, ripped down the Moorish banner, put up the Christian flag. And one of his colleagues, one of the other soldiers said, look, he climbs like a gato. So today, gato, he can only be used by a third generation madrileño, can only claim to being a gato. Now, of the Moorish occupation, very little is left today, apart from some sections of the wall near the Royal Palace and Almudena Cathedral, which actually are very easy to see and very easy to go and visit. The city never progressed very much as a cultural or a political centre for some time. You mean it didn't progress under the Moors or after it had been taken? After, by after it had been taken. It remained pretty much of a backwater. 
and presumably under the Moors, as we know, the the Moorish invaders from the south, from North Africa, were a force of Arabs and Berbers who took most of the Iberian Peninsula, of course, in the uh, the centuries leading up to the Reconquista. And it was over a period of centuries that that process of reconquest, as the Christian forces like to call it, came from the north. So in the 11th century, we've got a city or, or a settlement where the Christian forces under Alfonso VI had taken what was a fortress from the Moors and was now developing. So how, how far did it develop under those early Christian rulers from the 11th, 12th centuries? Well, it remained, it remained a rather small and obscure settlement for a long time. There are some notable monuments left that you can still see, the Casa de los Lujanes. Lujan was a notable family. And its tower off the Calle Mayor. I would recommend that as a visit. That's near the San Miguel Market and the Old Town Hall. And it's from the late 15th century. It's a remarkable example, in fact, of Madrid uh, late Mudejar style. Apart from that, there really isn't a great deal left to, to see of uh, those years. Not until Madrid finally came to prominence as the capital of Spain. So it was visited by kings over that period, but in a sort of peripatetic way, wasn't it, during the, the 14th century and so on? There wasn't that much in the way of royal visits. Frankly, I would say no. It remained pretty obscure and small and agricultural, if you like. And at that point, the Muslims had, in theory, been forced out, but there were still communities of Muslims and, of course, Jews at that time too, weren't there? Very much so, very much so. There were, in fact, uh, original ghettos, and there are remnants of that in the city as well, just in the form of plaques, not, nothing left really in the architecture. But it was curious because the three, the three adversaries, if you like, the Moors, the Jews, and the Christians, they managed to get on well. And as far as the Iberian Jews were concerned, I mean, they owed allegiance to whoever happened to be in charge. They would pay taxes to the Christians, they would pay taxes to the Moors, and they were, let to get, uh, they were allowed to get on with it. There wasn't really any persecution until the late 15th century when they were expelled. So what happened at that point? As you say, that was a period of great change from the late 15th century, both politically in terms of the rulers of Madrid and socially and in terms of religion. Well, the big game changer, in fact, came in 1561. The capital, which had been established by the Visigoths, remained Toledo. It shifted here and there to other cities, but it was basically Toledo. And in 1561, Philip II decided to up sticks and move his capital to Madrid. Now, I've seen documents. I've seen the decree ordering the shift of the capital. What I have not seen, and no one has ever seen, is any reason for him doing it. We don't know. We haven't a clue why he did it. There are lots of, um, lots of theories. One of them that I find most persuasive was that Toledo at the time was the seat of the Catholic Church, the Archdiocese. And Philip, uh, to be able to get on, with being the king of the um, empire, wanted to put some distance between himself and influence and pressure from the Catholic Church. Another strong argument is water. And that's where Maharit comes into it, because Toledo was growing rapidly, and the only source of water was a, was a deep gorge down to the Tajo, the Tajas River, and it became increasingly difficult to provide drinking water for the population, whereas Madrid had the river, and this was important. It was also geographically the center of the Iberian trade route, and this had some importance. It had Escorial, where Philip wanted to build his monastery. And so it also had a much more benign climate, believe it or not, than Toledo in those days. 
until Philip arrived. He had in tow about 7,000 people, six, 7,000 people. Of course, these people needed to be housed. They needed firewood. Virginia was surrounded by woodland, and this all disappeared. Well, a lot of it disappeared. I wouldn't say all of it disappeared. And the woodlands protected Madrid from the fierce winds of the Guadarrama Range, 7,000-foot mountains 50 miles north of Madrid. So that disappeared, and the climate of Madrid changed radically. And the, the saying goes for Madrid that it's nueve meses de invierno y tres de infierno, which translates as nine months of winter and three of hell. Uh, so the climate is really quite, uh, quite severe, quite severe. I've been a lot colder in Madrid than in London, frankly. We in England might remember Philip II as, as the king who launched the Armada against Britain in uh, the late 16th century. But as you say, he had quite an effect on Spain as a whole and Portugal. And that period following that was quite a turbulent period in, in Spanish and European history, wasn't it? There were wars with various polities. Yes. I mean, Philip was the son of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and Charles I of Spain. It was a pretty hard act to follow. And three more Habsburgs were to follow in after Philip until the um, Charles II arrived. Uh, he was a very sad case. He was unable to produce heirs. The Armada, you mentioned the Armada, which is quite interesting because a lot of people could see the disaster coming. And I've seen a document in the southern uh, archives on south, La Duquesa de Medina Sidonia, called the Red Duchess. She has a wonderful archive she had. She's gone now, which shows that her ancestor was meant to lead the Armada. He smelt a rat and realized this could not work. And in the document, he basically writes to Philip and says, uh, well, something like, I'm very honored by your choice uh, for me to lead the Armada. I'm, frankly, I'm, I'm a bit busy next weekend and I can't make it. But he said, no, you're going. And so he went. And of course, we all know what happened there. But then with the disappearance of the Habsburgs, we have the 18th century, which kicked off with the death of 1700 of Charles II, and a dynastic war, the War of the Spanish Succession, after which we have the House of Bourbon moved in to uh, rule the country, as they do today. Now, a lot of people take issue with this, and they feel that the Bourbons basically were a bad influence on Spain, a nefarious influence. I would argue that this is not so. They did an awful lot for, for Madrid. They built the royal palace, for one thing, in 1735, which is now Europe's largest royal palace, to replace the Alcázar, which, which had been there since the ninth century. It had to be replaced because it was destroyed by fire. Curious incident that when it caught fire, and this has always amused me, the servants were running around seeing what could be saved. One of them spotted Velázquez Las Meninas and thought, hmm, not a bad painting. I think I'll take this out. And he threw it out, dumped it in the courtyard to save it from the fire. And there it sat until someone picked it up and eventually ended up in the Prada Museum. But as for the Bourbons themselves, we have Joseph Bonaparte, for instance. He was the most hated. He was called Pepe, which is a diminutive of Joseph, and Botella, which is bottle, because people accused him of being a drunkard. In fact, he was a teetotaler. The whole business about Botella comes from Botellería, which is a tavern, and many of them were shut down. He reopened them. That's why he's called Pepe Botella. He also brought joy to the city by bringing back bullfighting, which had disappeared. But more than anything, the Bourbons centralized the system of government, and it enhanced Madrid's power as the capital of the empire over other Spanish cities. And it also started a period of architectural glory. I particularly love the Conde Duque Barracks, uh, which is now a heritage site and a magnificent cultural center. They built the palace, the Rococo Palace Museum, 
called the Museum of History of Madrid, which can be seen in Calle Fuencarral. It's quite a mind-blowing place. And so it went until, I believe you went on to discuss the 19th and 20th centuries. It went rumbling along. Spain was gradually losing its, its influence over the uh, American empire. Then the crash, of course, came in 1898 with the Spanish-American War. I wonder if we can jump back just a little bit, because obviously what we've, you mentioned the, the 18th century, the Bourbons, and obviously the period of the Enlightenment had its effect on Spanish culture as well. And of course, in the early 19th century, there was another set of conflicts and Napoleon came on the scene. How, how did that affect Spain and particularly Madrid during the, the start of the 19th century? Yes, you raise a very good point. There was, of course, the famous uprising in the Puerto del Sol, the 2nd of May, 1808. This, of course, inspired Goya's magnificent painting, paintings, actually, of the incident. And this was in reaction to the occupation of Madrid, so during the Peninsular War, when famously England won the Battle of Trafalgar. But earlier than that, Napoleon had come, if you like, as a supporting force and then occupied Madrid. Well, his yeah, Joseph Napoleon uh, occupied Madrid and stayed on for a number of years. But eventually, as you say, it was the English, Wellington, who were the ones who turfed the French out. And Spain went back under, under well, back under Bourbon rule, but they were Spanish. That sort of almost sparked a, a period of uh, instability and more strife throughout the 19th century, didn't it, within the Spanish political life? Yeah, there were, I mean, there was the First Republic that came and went, and there was a Primo de dictatorship that came and went, and it was pretty topsy-turvy for a long time. But uh, Madrid basically got on with it. It's a city that's used to chaos, if you like, political chaos. And so they just got on with it. But then, as I said, the real, I mean, the crucial date was 1898, when the empire was finally wound up with the loss of Philippines and Cuba. And that's when Spain went into serious decline. And Madrid, of course, it was no longer the capital of the empire. I think we need to perhaps fast forward to the second half of the 20th century, when Madrid really became the protagonist of major political events. There was the First World War, of course, that brought the infamous Spanish flu, which was, of course, nothing of the sort. Just as an aside, the reason it's called the Spanish flu is because Spain was not a belligerent, and the other powers, Italy, France, Germany, Britain, refused to, they censored all information about this uh, pandemic. They didn't want to demoralize their troops or their people. And the Spanish, of course, weren't involved in this. They just cheerfully went on publishing information about it. All the Madrid papers were picked up abroad. And it was assumed that this was a Spanish flu, which I believe actually was started in an army field hospital in France. But that's sort of by the by. Alfonso XIII was the last king of that period. And that's when things really became quite violent. He was forced to abdicate in, in 1931. And there wasn't a great deal left of his legacy. There's a, a tunnel from the Royal Palace to Botine Restaurant, which is the Guinness Book of Records says is the oldest in the world, by the Plaza Mayor, where apparently he would go and entertain his lady friends. His mother, the regent Maria Cristina, had commissioned a comic for him from a Jesuit writer named Luis Coloma called Ratoncito Perez, a little mouse Perez, the tooth fairy which is part of his legacy as well. Now it's a museum in the Calle Arenal and great fun to visit. And that was about it until 1936. And we all know what happened then when the Republic fell and Madrid became a very heroic but embattled city. Perhaps you could give us an idea just very briefly, the background behind the civil war. So the conflict between the forces that became known as the nationalists and Republicans. 
in the end, because of the conflicts within Parliament, they put together a government which was composed largely of socialists, communists, and a number of anarchists. This frightened certain elements within society, some elements of the military, the Catholic Church as well, and something had to be done about this, according to them. Madrid, Spain was not really getting on with any making any political progress, because it was all based on infighting. And so the uprising came after the assassination of a phalangist leader, and that was um, July 1936. From that moment on, for nearly three years, Spain was a besieged city, living in most horrendous conditions. It was put on the map, of course, you'd pick up any book by Hemingway or any of those journalists of the time, and they were all there. Franco had the backing of the Foreign Legion and all the Moors. He brought them over from North Africa and started his march to Madrid. He went to Toledo, committed a few atrocities there, and carried on to Madrid, and there he was stopped effectively. For nearly three years, he was unable to enter the city. Constant aerial bombardments, constant shelling of the city. Well, the journalists tell you all about it, and Hemingway especially. Interesting, uh, there's a bar called Barque Chicote, which was founded by Perico Chicote in the 1920s, I believe. I interviewed him when I was doing a story on people who remembered Hemingway in the 1970s, and I asked him what he was like. And he said, well, you see that stool over there? That's where he sat and drank. And you see the floor? That's where he ended up. He just couldn't hold his booze. <laughs> so I thought that was rather amusing. They all reported on this. And of course, you had others. You can listen to, to, to YouTube recordings of uh, Daily Express journalists who were Franco telling a completely different story about what was going on. That went on until the city was overrun by Franco's forces. You had the Telefonica building, which was the highest building in the city at that time, was a uh, target for their shelling. The Banco de Bilbao across the road painted its golden dome black so that it couldn't be seen. And on it went. But the thing that always touches me most is that I've never seen a document of surrender. Army units gave in and they fled. They put down their arms. I've never seen anything where the government, the Republic of Spain, actually signed a surrender document. Madrid was overrun. It was defeated, but it did not surrender. That was about it. The city was extremely uh, badly damaged. Now that, in a way, came to give Madrid some of the character it has today. I've always thought of Madrid as a village that plays at being a city. The end of the Civil War attracted thousands of people from villages around Spain. Agriculture workers, farm workers, opportunity to earn a salary on a scaffold seem much preferable to herding goats. And it gives Madrid this character that uh, very few people at that time from Madrid, and even today, not that many people are actually from Madrid, which is a very interesting and a very, I would say, joyful mix of people. The post-Civil War period, say from 1939 to 1975, when Franco finally died, had little impact on Madrid life, in fact. Strikes, protests, these were violently put down, make no mistake. However, if you were a middle-class office worker, just interested in getting on with your life, maybe taking a holiday abroad from time to time, nobody stopped you doing this. It was that kind of dictatorship. I mean, unlike Salazar in Portugal, which deliberately kept Portugal an agricultural country, Franco let industry uh, and a middle class develop. And this was his undoing, because as these people began to travel, they would take a flight from Madrid to Rome, to Paris, to London, and see what was going on in the real world. They came back quite annoyed. And so the groundwork was laid for a peaceful transition. And a remarkable transition it was as well, because it was based really changing dictatorship to a democracy using the mechanics, the tools of the dictatorship, pretty much like what happened. This was a model in the Soviet Union and, and Eastern Europe as well. And 
Well, I first set foot in Madrid in 1962. Goodness me, did I just say that? Oh, well. It was broiling heat in July. And to give you an idea of what it was like, I ended up in the Puerto. I got off got on my taxi in the Puerto del Sol. I found dozens of disabled, amputee, war veterans begging, civil guards patrolling in black patent leather hats, machine guns cradled under their arms. It looked like a Goya black painting. If we look now, fast forward, say, to 19... Well, the game changer was actually before that, but it took a while for it to sink in. In the late 1950s, just at the end of 1950s, the big political event was when the Opus Dei managed to oust the Falanges from the cabinet. And they took over. They had the most influence in the cabinet. They initiated what was called the Apertura, translated as the opening, opening up to foreign tourism and foreign investment. And this place, Madrid... Uh, the regime on the road to eventual international acceptance, because of course Madrid was a pariah after the Second World War. It wasn't in the UN, it wasn't in the common market, it wasn't in the IMF or any of those organizations that rebuilt Europe. Then came the death in 1975 of General Franco. The 20th of November actually is quite a significant date, because he was on a life support machine for quite some time, and I went to the hospital for the nightly briefings and didn't get to see him, of course, but you saw, you got the feel that the government was quite nervous. Why the 20th of November? Well, they decided they had to pull the plug at some time. And so it happens that Jose Antonio Primo Rivera, who was the founder of the Falange, was executed by the Republicans in 1936 on the 20th of November. And they thought, well, we can't have one national day of mourning on the 18th, another one on the 20th, can we? So we better hang on for another 48 hours or so and then let him go. This also gave uh, Franco's family and politicians time to dispatch their money out of the country. In fact, Franco's son-in-law, who was his heart surgeon, was stopped at the Madrid airport with an iron lung. He was meant to be taken to the Philippines, actually full of money. That was more or less what was good. There were years, years of total improvisation following the death of Franco, political improvisation from one day to the next. Good as Adolfo Suarez was, and I have a lot of respect for him, They really had no idea what they were going to do the following day. I can give you an example of that. I had dinner one night with General Manuel Gutierrez Mayalo, who was a deputy prime minister. He had a genuine, he was a Francoist general, but had a genuine change of heart. And he invited me to dinner after many calls back and forth and took me to the establishment restaurant, the jockey. That was in January 1977. In our conversation, I asked him when they were going to legalize the Spanish Communist Party because there were demos in the streets almost every day. And he said, under this government, never. And certainly not with Santiago Carrillo, who was the communist head, as uh, head of the party. Well, that was in January. In April, the party was legalized. Santiago Carrillo was general secretary. So that showed that really it was a question of um, improvisation. On it went. It was a peaceful transition, largely. The first couple of years were a bit worrisome because there were still a lot of right-wingers in the street and Fuerza Nueva, which was the fascist youth organization, committed some atrocities. And then, of course, you had this attempted kind of Buster Keaton coup in 1981 when the Civil Guard stormed Parliament and were summarily um, ousted. And the head of it has just, Antonio Rejero, has just been released from jail a couple of years ago. So that was basically what happened until the early 1980s in Madrid. Then, obviously, in the in the past four decades, Madrid has become a really popular destination for tourists as well as a, a, a cosmopolitan city and, and the capital of a country which is, you know, functioning at a level you couldn't have imagined perhaps 60 or 70 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm astonished every time I go to Madrid. And when I was last there last month, I couldn't believe the number of tourists. There are actually more tourists than in Barcelona. 
Barcelona is better at promoting itself, but Madrid has become the in spot. You had, of course, this movida, which loosely translates as the movement, but not quite, a kind of counterculture movement that kicked off in the late 70s to the mid-1980s, which was overseen by the socialist prime minister, Felipe González, who was the man who, he was the man who modernized Spain, no doubt about that. It's a city now that offers a good life. If you've got the stamina for it, you feel awfully silly if you go to a hotel at 11 o'clock at night. And even Hemingway said this back in the 1930s, 20s. The, the worst traffic jams now in Madrid start building up around midnight. If you walk down, say, Puerto Alcalá, which is surrounded by outdoor cafes, you, on any weeknight, you'd be, after midnight, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a table. You think that you know, you're in a city that, that never sleeps. There are reasons for this, though. If you take, a, say, a 10-minute walk from the Plaza, what's the Plaza? Tisla Molina to Anton Martins. Tisla Molina Anton Martins. You will pass more bars than in Norway. So there you are. That's really the flavor of the, what symbolizes the joy of Madrid for me. Came a couple of years ago. One night, I was sitting at the Café Gijón, the old literary café, outdoors. It was a lovely late uh, spring, early summer evening with my co-author, Helen Crisp with a glass of cover, listening to a pianist outside playing Broadway show tunes. Now, we had a flight back to London the following morning, and I thought, my goodness, you know, what are we going to feel like tomorrow morning? Maybe we should get back to the hotel. At that point, what came to mind was a line from John Dryden, his poem, Happy the Man, where he says, Tomorrow do thy worst, for I have lived today, and that is my Madrid. Well, that was a, a very elegant precy of such a long and rich history, Jules, as well as some fascinating personal takes. Given you've had such a long history with Madrid and, and you've got such in-depth knowledge of the bars as well as the uh, the museums and the churches, I mean, I'm going to ask you to share five sites that you would recommend visitors seek out in Madrid, each revealing something about the city's past. Fine. Okay, well, look, I would definitely go to San Antonio de la Florida, which is only about a 10-minute metro ride from uh, journey from the Atocha railway station. It's very much off the beaten tourist trail. It's The ceiling and the dome have frescoes by Goya, which you will not see elsewhere, and it's very well. It's also his final burial place. So that would definitely be on my list. Another, I wouldn't say he's not appreciated, but perhaps not enough, Joaquin Sorolla. His museum, which is smack in the center of Madrid, very walkable. His studio and family home are there. He was the painter of portraits, landscapes, and monumental works of social and historical themes of the, well, the 1920s, basically. Now, I mentioned the Atocha railway station. That is a gem and really worth seeing itself with majestic halls. It was pretty pokey in the old days. Majestic halls with exotic tropical forest and even a pool of tortoises in there. And the trains, the trains work. I mean, bless the Spanish railway network. They actually work. And it's, they've got the biggest high-speed rail network in the world, bigger than Japan, bigger than France, all due to Felipe González, who started, kick-started the high-speed rail network. But the railway station itself is well worth visiting, and there's some nice bars there too. As for museums, another one that a lot of people don't find in their guidebooks is the Museo del Romanticismo, Romanticism, where there are portraits by Goya and others of uh, writers of the period, classic salons with period furniture of the Romantic period. It's really a gem. What period are we talking about for the Romantic period? Oh, I would say the late, the very late, we came later in Spain than in uh, other, than other European countries. I would say the early 20th century. And of course, the Plaza dos de Mayo, which is named for the 2nd of May 1808 uprising, must be seen. It's the heart of the vibrant, still vibrant Malasaña district where the Movida was centered. 
heaving with bars and restaurants. Visit Casa Macarena, which is an extraordinary restaurant. When you finish, go across the road to Café Manuela, uh, named after Manuela Malasaña. She was a seamstress who lived in the Plata de de Mayo, and she was attacked by French troops who tried to rape her, and she defended herself with a pair of scissors. And she was put up against the wall and executed, which is why it's called the Plata uh, Malasaña. That was her surname. Uh, if you go to the cafe named after her, you find it stacked with board games. You can sit there and play Monopoly or whatever you like. Well, before you let you go, Jules, could you share one piece of advice for anyone planning a visit to Madrid? Oh, yes, definitely. You're going to visit the Prada Museum. I would decide what you want to see. You know, you've got more than 7,000 paintings there. I would suggest seeing the Spanish masters who you won't see so much of elsewhere, Goya, Greco, and Velázquez, and Las Meninas, which was saved from the fire. If you've got time, the Hieronymus Bosch uh, triptych, the Garden of Earthly Delights, is quite an impressive uh, bit of enigmatic scenes. But most of all, above all, book online in advance, because the queues can have you standing there for an hour or more. If you book online, you just walk right past into the museum. That's what I would do. Excellent. Well, that's a very helpful tip, Jules. Thank you for sharing your knowledge about Madrid's history and landmarks with us today. That was Jules Stewart. His latest book, co-written with Helen Crisp, is Madrid, Midnight City, published by Reaction Books and available now. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.